Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter, and that would be page 708 in the Church Bibles, Mark chapter 2, page 708 in the Church Bibles. And as most of you know, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse, and so this morning we're in the second part of a two-part talk of this calling of Levi. So in just a second, I'm going to read verse 13 until... Verse 17. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors, and you'll notice in the NIV, it's, quote, sinners, were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the, quote, sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, in quotes there. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not... Come to call the righteous, but sinners. And you'll notice there's no close quotes under that term, sinners. Okay. Let's pray together and may God grant us understanding of his word this morning. Father, with our Bibles open, we do earnestly pray for your help. We ask for the divine ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach us and that you will let that divine dialogue take place wherein your spirit speaks deep into our lives. And even though, God, the sermon may be marginal, the speaker may be average, we will know that this is none other than the voice of God as your word is preached from these verses. Father, this is what we seek and this is what we need. And since the end will come, either our end or this world, we ask that our remaining years will be our best years. For you, for others, for the sake of the gospel. And Father, these verses before us can help us to that end. So we find ourselves now in a, now in a very, very safe place, dependent on you to transform our lives. For Jesus' sake, then we ask this. Amen. Well, we said last time that this occasion which Mark records for us had made a very strong impact on the early Christians. And we said that because this is one of those stories that you'll find in Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, and Luke's gospel as well. And the reappearance of the story then, while not being unique, is something we need to pay attention to. In other words, under God, it appears that God really wants us to understand this story so much so that we are confronted with it three times. And it would seem, and you'll see this if your Bible's open, that verse 17 is the key verse. The key verse which gives us a very clear look of who Jesus is, what it is he has come to do, and what it means to follow him. So you'll see this. We're told that Jesus commanded Levi to leave his old life behind and become his follower. And by grace, Levi got up, left his old life behind, and became his follower. Now, he left his old life behind, but he did not leave his old friends behind. Which is why, as you see there, that Jesus and Levi are together at this party. And so we say, well, how do we know it's a party? Well, in verse 15, you'll see it there. Sinners were eating with him. And that final phrase, were eating with him, can be translated 
In fact, that's what it says in the Greek, reclining with him. And reclining at dinner at that time meant that this was a very special occasion. This was, this was a party, a celebration, and special people were invited. That's why they were reclining. And so someone might say very quickly, well, wait a minute. I thought that if you follow Jesus, you should follow him to church and you should follow him to other holy, holy places, but certainly not to this uh, nightclub-like atmosphere. And so we would say yes to the former. Church is awesome and necessary. But we'd say no to the latter because Jesus is saying here that I was sent to save this sinful world. Therefore, my concern is to make contact with this sinful world. And of course, what is true of Jesus is to be equally true for those who follow him. Now, in order to help us understand some of what is happening here, indeed, specifically in the Pharisee's statement and frankly, their misuse of God's law, God's word, I came across something I thought would be useful to you last week. And this is what it is. In the year 1880, many churches in America were beginning to have a problem. And the problem, believe it or not, was this. Indoor plumbing, restrooms, was beginning to be introduced on a mass scale to the American public. So in churches all across the land, up until that time, if you had to go, quote, you either had to sit and wait or you had to get up and take a walk out to the outhouse. And sometimes it was a very long walk. Now, as indoor plumbing was coming of age, there were some churches who determined that it was unbiblical to have indoor plumbing restrooms inside the church. Therefore, and we hear this a lot, we're not about to spend God's money on indoor plumbing. And here in their minds was the proof text that said, um, this is why we believe this. It's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 15. This is in your Bible. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. Now, the context of that verse was the old covenant, if you would, was beginning to be established. And the camp was a mobile camp. And the people of God, as they were in their wilderness wanderings, were setting up camps in all kinds of different places. But as soon as they put down stakes for camp, that ground was sacred ground. It was holy ground, and it was a space of worship. And so the practical aspect of this uh, holiness is something we probably take for granted. So we ask, okay, why did God say that? Okay, well, one, disease. And holiness in, is often in line in the Old Testament with physical health. And two, deportment, right? Courtesy, privacy. However, as I said, in 1880, there were a number of churches who did not want to use church monies on indoor plumbing, and they basically said indoor plumbing is unbiblical, and they used this text, the one I read to you, uh, to say the kind of thing that we so often hear today, right? God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Okay, let me say this. That kind of isolation of texts with no consideration of the context, always makes for a horrible explanation of the text. Let me say that again. It's a good sentence. <laughs> Sorry. That kind of isolation of text, you're taking something from the old covenant, and you have no consideration of the context. It makes a horrible explanation of the text. And so we may laugh about that thing and say, how could they think that way back then? 
But that kind of thing has happened all throughout church history up until this day. Doctrine, movies, music, money, clothes, politics, tattoos, how we raise children. Isolate the text. Throw out the context. Believe it. Preach it. And you ruin lives. And you tell lies about Jesus and about God's truth. And that was the kind of thing that was taking place here in Mark's gospel by these Pharisees. So the big question, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? It has very clear answers. Who is Jesus? Mark chapter 1 verse 1. Jesus is the son of God. That's who Jesus is. Okay, well, why did he come? Well, he came in order to preach the gospel. That's chapter 1, verse 38. And to be the gospel he preaches as he makes his way to the cross to die for sin. That's why Jesus came. Preach the cross. Go to the cross. Save the world from the penalty of sin. And if you would, to display the greatest act of love and the greatest act of mercy this world will ever know. That Jesus takes our punishment on the cross because of our rebellion and our transgressions and our apathy and our sin. Okay, so then what does it mean to follow Jesus, right? Chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. And here in the latter half of this true story, we're given a very, very clear picture of just what it means to follow Jesus. And it's in the title, Supper with Sinners. Supper with sinners. Contact, relationship with people outside of Jesus Christ. Now, loved ones, I said all that because when the question comes, and it comes in many different ways, okay, who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? Some people will say, well, you know, you can't really know. So you believe and you do your Jesus thing and I'll believe and I'll do my Jesus thing and we'll we'll stay in our theological tribes and as long as we're sincere and as long as we feel, quote, the Spirit move us, It'll just be fine. But I want to tell you, no, it will not be fine. In fact, forgive me, that's bathroom talk. That's the outhouse group. Mark cannot be any clearer in his answer to those questions. So if your Bible's open, you'll see this. Wicked Levi is called out of darkness. Who called him? Jesus. That's what he does. The grace of God saves him. And since the gospel is the power of God, Romans 1.16, as Jesus saves Levi, his mighty power comes down on Levi and transforms Levi. That's called a conversion. Subsequently, one of the byproducts of a conversion is Levi wants all his old friends to know that he's a follower of Jesus now. And he wants all his old friends to follow Jesus just like he is. So in his old life, Levi was a tax collector. So he was a number of guys. And he's probably very efficient with numbers and things like that. So it's easy for me to see where he would say to himself, you know what, I want everybody to know, that everybody that I know to know about Jesus. So this is great. I'm going to throw a party. One great wave, right? Everybody I know will be at the party. And here's Jesus. And in one, if you would, efficient move, everyone is going to hear about him. And that idea is at least by way of inference in the text. And of course, the guest list is where the trouble lies, right? That's verse 16. Do you see it there? When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with, quote, sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, whoa, right? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, in quotes. Four points, pretty brief. Number one, a little bit of history. 
Now, clearly the group in question was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the spiritual descendants of a group of people called the Hasidim. And the name Hasidim meant faithful. And the Hasidim were given this name because 200 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Greek thought, which would be uh, Greek religious thought, Greek uh, ethic and moral thought, had begun to kind of infiltrate the Jewish culture. And if it were not for the existence of the Hasidim, who held the line the right way and stood for devotion to God's law... Judaism could have well been swallowed up in, in, if you would, in synchronism. And what that is, is, is you take a little bit of Jewish truth and you take a little bit of Greek philosophy, you smash it together and you say, there you go. And of course, that's nothing. It happens all the time in the world. Well, people take a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of Muslim and you put it together and say, hey, how about that? Needless to say... The Hasidim, in taking this stand, did a good thing. However, as time passed, as always with a great number of things, something good can be turned into something bad. And a deeply held conviction, hold to the law, which was right, was pushed to an unbiblical extreme, which was wrong, and it turned around and bit them. So that by the time Jesus steps onto the stage of human history, these Pharisees, of which there were actually a very, very small number, they made a bloody mess of things. And they were leading others astray. In fact, they were blocking others from a relationship with God in their misuse of God's law. That's why the whole thing was so terrible. That's a little bit of history. Now, a little bit of theology. The name Pharisee itself means the separated one. Because they believed that salvation came from distancing themselves from anyone who in their minds was morally loose. So their salvation and their sanctification came that way. So it was important for them. If they were to maintain their holiness, they should not, could not, will not have any connection, any conversation, any relationships, any meals with any, quote, sinners ever. And a sinner in their mind was anyone who did not keep God's law the way the Pharisees understood or interpreted God's law. And frankly, their interpretation of God's law was from hell. Now that's important because they had a way of understanding God's law which was completely wrong, like our um, outhouse people. And anyone who did not follow their, the, the law of God their way they would, quote, call a sinner. And so while Moses was given 10 commandments by God, the Pharisees ended up with 613 commandments to ensure, in part, to keep them away from sinners. So they had 248 do's, 365 don'ts. And if that wasn't enough, and one wonders how you can remember all that, but anyway, if that wasn't enough, they had extra laws, uh, extra little um, addendums added to those 613 commandments just in case. Now, I said they totally misunderstood the right use of God's law. And this is what I mean. This is their line of thought. In order to ensure righteousness, all right, we'll say it like this. In order to ensure the righteous themselves would remain righteous, they had to keep the necessary distance away from sinners. And we said sinners were the people who paid no attention to their you know, long list of regulations and their interpretation and application of God's law. So they used these 613, um, quote, laws as buffers between themselves, the righteous, and those other people, the sinners. 
And so what we can call this is stay away holiness, right? You stay away from sinners or you'll become like sinners. Like it's a germ, right? So don't get the germ. Now, if you're thinking that has a little bit of a contemporary ring to it, stay away or you'll become like them. Is that how it works? Stay away from the very people who need Jesus. So they had some ceremonial washings and outward observances, which gave them distinction. But, you know, in the whole thing, scheme, it didn't really matter. They said, you know what? We have to isolate ourselves from sinners so that we won't become unclean sinners. And, and so um, this is what they did, you know, and this is a little bit of a, a conjecture, uh, if you would. They had their Jewish theme parks. <laughs> they had their Jewish restaurants and their Jewish concerts and their Jewish hair salon. <laughs> And, and their Jewish TV shows, just for us. Sound kind of familiar? Now, clearly, they had a very poor understanding of the Old Testament. Clearly, they did not understand what the purpose of the law was in the first place. Okay, which was what? What is the purpose of the law? Well, that we would know God's will, right? We know what is right. We know what is wrong. We would then, in turn, because we're going to be honest here, we're going to see our own sinful nature the sinful nature of our own hearts and see how we need a substitute. We need a savior. We need God's grace to save us because because the righteousness we have is not enough. We need a righteousness given. And of course, that is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the proper use of the law. And this understanding of this, the law was embedded all over the Old Testament. So it wasn't like it was some kind of mystery. In fact, Jesus would often go to the scribes. Remember Nicodemus? And essentially he said, Nicodemus, you're an expert. You should know this. But you don't know this. So they had an un- improper understanding of the law. And clearly they had no understanding of grace. That God is a gracious God, and they had no idea that they needed this grace. They thought God, and this is again very contemporary, they thought that God will only act on behalf of the righteous. Right? So so God will only bless good people. So you be good, because that's how you'll get blessed. Making the good that we would do self-serving, it was all self-preservation, no contamination at all costs, or it will cost us God's blessing. There's no love in that. So, so in my mind, it's like low level and high level. Low level would be, you know, the people on the TV, you send your check into God and God will bless you, right? That's low level. High level is, okay, you go through the equivalent of a spiritual Ivy League school and holy cow, you, you learn, you're going to be righteous, you're going to be so right and you will be blessed. And again, I'm being facetious, if you can afford the school. However, A little bit later on in Mark chapter 7, you can read this for homework. Jesus will set the record straight. And in chapter 7, he says, contamination doesn't come from outside of us. It's actually already inside of us. In other words, it is not our surroundings. It is us, which is why, think through this. We don't have to teach our kids how to be bad, do we? We don't have to teach ourselves how to be bad. We just by nature know how to be really, really bad. Why? Because it's already inside of us. And that's why in the 5th century, uh, the monastic movement was a total failure in the realm of personal holiness because as individuals separated themselves from, quote, the world, they very quickly found out, and many people would write of this, that they could be free from every worldly influence 
at all, right? So they're in a cave just with themselves. And they would be stunned by the level of wickedness inside of them with no props at all, right? Forgive me, with no internet. They found themselves horrible. Now you want to ask yourself the question, especially if you're a parent, does keep away holiness really work? Does it? The, the misuse of God's law will always kill. It will destroy. The right use of the law and the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that is life. The kind of holiness that Jesus calls for here will never be granted by isolation or separation for those reasons, never. That's not to say that anything goes. It's not to say that, um, you know, whatever you like is fine. But it is to say that evil, our evil, finds its origin inside of us and not outside. That's a little bit of theology. Third point, history, theology, a little bit on the guest directory. So here in the story, it all comes down in the minds of the Pharisees to you don't eat food with those kinds of people. That was the bugaboo for them, right? Sharing a meal with a person in that world at that time meant you're sharing your life. Eating created a special bond between the people. So your guest directory was selected very carefully. And the people on your list, the people at your party, meant that you accepted them. That you were fine with them. The Pharisees were certain sinners were to be hated and avoided. Jesus, by his actions, is saying they need to be accepted and they need to be helped. Now, unfortunately, as soon as I wrote that on Thursday afternoon, a song came to my mind. It was an older song from 1974, the song Bad Company. And this is the line that came to mind. Bad company, I can't deny. Bad company, till the day I die. And Jesus is like, yeah, bad company. And yep, till the day I die. In fact, you know what? I'm going to be crucified between two bad people. Right up to my end. I'm going to be surrounded by sinners. And one of them, thank God one of them, is going to be saved. Bad company until the day I die. Now, Jesus by his attendance in the party was not and does not condone sin. He wasn't saying, you know what, it's okay to be a tax collector. And he wasn't saying, okay, it's okay if you live kind of loose. He wasn't doing that. Because at times people will try to pull that from the story, right? And they're going to give themselves a license to behave really, really badly and do whatever they want to do. But it's not in the text. So we can't use the story as kind of leverage to excuse ourselves from any kind of unbiblical behavior. For example, the sin of drunkenness, the sin of immorality. The sin of sexual immorality. The sin of hedonism, right? Self-indulgence, right? So, you know, go ahead, have a Bible study in the bar, fine. Have a bit of church in the pub, fine. But nobody should get drunk. Nobody should be messing around. Nobody should be acting like a fool. You don't need to do that because you see, and you'll see that there in verse 15, the ministry of Jesus was so effective here. Now, remember in the synagogue, it was like zero effectiveness, but in the, if you would, in the party, all of a sudden you see it there. Look, it says, tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and the disciples, for there were many who followed him. There you go, in that place, at that party, Jesus was winning souls. 
So again, this is not to say that it's okay for us to live loose because look at verse 17. He's there to save sinners, not to give them a license to sin. There's an old expression that says the boat does have to be in the water, but water doesn't have to be in the boat. And so we know what the easy thing is, right? The easy thing is to go the pharisaical route and have complete and total isolation from, quote, the world. Free from contamination, wear the mask, stay away. Because we know, I mean, at least I'm willing to admit, it's hard to live in the world, but not of the world. Which is why Jesus prayed what he prayed in John 17. Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. No, leave them there. But please keep them from the evil one. Jesus would say engagement is possible. Engagement is necessary. Engagement is, is commanded. And he prays to the Father for us in that. So this is the green light to associate with unbelievers. Presenting Jesus to them. And before we get to the final point, isn't it kind of interesting, right? So the whole Pharisee thing was keep away from sinners. But why are they at the party? Like, how do they know what's going on, right? So part of the answer is, okay, in that time, basically a lot of the parties with like the homes there, if you had a huge front porch. So the community could be walking by and seeing what was going on. And so you should imagine the Pharisees kind of like on the perimeters. So whatever their distance was, you know, and, and the Sabbath law was basically point uh, or six-tenths of a mile. That's as far as you could travel from your house on the Sabbath. Okay, whatever the distance was, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'll find out as I study further. But anyway, they're like, okay, we've got to keep that far, right? So we're not going to be technically in the party, but we're going to be outside looking into the party, right? Is that not kind of silly? I mean, in my mind, I was, I was thinking the Pharisees kind of just like walking back and forth the party and they were looking at Jesus to try to catch him doing something wrong. And maybe they made eye contact with the sinner like, oh, and they looked away real quick. It's like, I don't know how it worked. The only thing I could think of, and I apologize for this, is that when my wife and I were dating, you know, and we, we were like, you know, dating, she worked at the mall and she worked at JCPenney. So sometimes I would, quote, go to the mall to, quote, go shopping. And what I was doing, I was being snoopy, you know, and I just wanted to look at her. Right? I didn't know her. So I'd walk in there and walk past the thing a couple of times. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And I think I might marry that thing. But anyway, the point was I was, wasn't, you know, I was just kind of like there but not there. And I was looking but not looking. And it's the same thing here. It's just kind of weird. I was kind of weird. It's a wonder she married me. But anyway, fourth point. Final point, a little bit for you and a little bit for me. So this is the application here. So the question comes indirectly to Jesus. Why are you eating with sinners? And Jesus gives a proverb. You see it there uh, in the third person, which none of his opponents could realistically disagree with. Sick people need a doctor. And everybody knows that. And then he gives his purpose statement spoken in the first person. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. In other words, Jesus would say, if, if you're here asking me if it is permissible to do this, that's a bad question. I want you to know that it is my purpose to do this. This is why I've come. And everyone who follows me will do the same. I'm mixed with sinners because they have a disease and I have a cure. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Why would I spend time with religious people? Why would I spend time with people confident in their own righteousness who don't know themselves sick, who have it all right? They never listen to me anyway. No, I want to spend time with those who are unaware, or excuse me, who are aware 
on some level that they are sick and they are sinners and they need a savior. And you'll find this all throughout the ministry of Jesus, right? Uh, Remember the wee little Zacchaeus? He comes down from the tree, goes to his house with Jesus. Jesus talks to him. He gets converted. And Jesus ends the whole thing by saying what? Salvation is coming to this house. And just by way of reminder, just so you'll know that why I am here, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. That's why those who follow me, that's why they're here too. Four quick applications. Number one. The whole of the ministry of Jesus Christ was direct himself to the sinful and, and the sick, right? And you need to settle your minds. This was the whole intent of his ministry. There's a cool little hymn that has a line. He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He only came to save the world for Jesus was his name. And then you say, and when you call him savior, you call him by his name. So the whole ministry of Jesus, his whole mission was directed towards the sinners, the sick. So let that settle in your mind. I mean, this is the Jesus Christ in you if you are in Christ. This is the Christ we are following. So the Holy One, the Son of God, provokes the resentment of these Pharisees by putting Himself into the very setting which they would call sin. But Jesus calls ministry. Do you understand that? He puts Himself in a setting which which the religious call sin. But he calls ministry. That's number one. Number two, we can't let a desire for holiness be used as an excuse for not cultivating friendships with unbelieving people. Right? We can't let that. So don't fall foul of the notion that says, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I just have to hang out with other Christians. Right? So I'm going to go where they go, and I'm going to do what they do, and I'm going to like what they like. How in the world are we going to reach a community for Christ? How? In fact, Jesus would say, part of holiness must be what? To obey this command to go. And if we're all we're keen on is, okay, my Christian existence, my self-protection, my self-improvement disguised as holiness talk, how in the world are we going to reach sinners? Who are we to withhold Jesus to others? Someone once said, the salt has to be on the potatoes, I said to myself this morning, ketchup has to be on the fries. And Jesus said, yeah, I get that. Jesus does not accept the sin, but he is accepting the sinners. And he's pointing us to an involvement and not isolation. Third application The church is clearly for those who are spiritually sick, right? That's what we're supposed to be. We're we're the emergency room, if you would, of Itasca County. So when someone's up against it, we become the kind of place where people can say, you know what, I need to go to that church. I need to go to West Coast Chapel. The people there, they're okay. They're interested. They won't send me away. And yeah, I've made a whole lot of bad decisions. And yeah, you know, I'm really confused. But we would say to ourselves, who hasn't among us made bad decisions? And who hasn't among us been confused from time to time? So we won't send them away unless what? Unless the place is increasingly becoming full of Pharisees. And we have this preoccupation on ourselves and our needs and our own spiritual journey. Do you remember the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan? 
What did the priest do and what did the Levite do? They did not do anything. Why didn't they do anything? Because they had this personal concern for their external purity. They couldn't go near that man because the man was unclean. And so their self-desire to keep clean, which is all messed up anyway, kept them from doing a basic Christian thing. So the Pharisees turned religion into like an insider's club. Two quotes, Archbishop William Temple, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who do not as of yet belong to Christ. William Booth, Salvation Army, some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And Jesus would say, you follow me? You, you really follow me? You'll do that. Final application. The church is a company of saved sinners, right? We're imperfect people, but we still have to ask ourselves the question, where do we stand in this? Where do we stand in this? I mean, I think one of the best lies of the evil one, at least I would say in our, in our community, is like, you know what, old Johnny, he's a good guy. He's basically fine. So, you know, I don't really need to tell him about Jesus and, and how he shed his blood for sinners. In fact, you know what? I'll just wait till Johnny gets really, really sick and then I'll go to Johnny. Or how about this one? Jeepers creepers, we are so busy. Or how about this one? This is our time. We did that Jesus stuff for 40 years. I mean, we're done with it now. We're just, this is our time. And of course, Jesus would say no to those things. Not if you follow me. We are deeply flawed people, but still, we are wounded healers. Wounded healers. Give me a little liberty, a little bit of conjecture, and a couple of nice things to say at the end. Here's the conjecture. So let's say this party is at its peak. And let's say the, the music is way too loud. So who's playing? We'll say Coldplay, Kenny Chesney, Drake, Sarah McLaughlin, Paul McCartney. Did I miss any group? Right? Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars is, is playing, okay? And you're Jesus. And he says to a sinner, hey, I've come to save you from your sins. And the guy's like, what? And he says, I've come to save you from your sins. And the guy says, you're going to hit me on the count of 10? And Jesus is like, you know what? Let's just go outside and let's talk. And they talk. And Jesus graciously explains to the person the nature and punishment of sin and the need that they have to repent. And now he's going to die on the cross for the very sins they discussed. And because it's my story, the person believes. And so the person is no longer, to quote Bruno Mars, he's no longer locked out of heaven. No longer. Something like that, on some level, is to be one of our main ambitions as a church and as followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is what I did Friday morning. I separated everybody into three groups. Older, middle, younger. So whatever group you think you fall in, that's fine. (laughs) So first I want to speak to the older people. This is what I want to say. I want to say that you're so nice. I had a conversation with a person a few days ago, and they were so nice to me. I mean, I honestly was like, 
I just wanted to nestle up into their arms. And I wanted to say, can you be my mom just, just for today? Just be my mom. This, you make me feel okay. Loved ones, there are a huge number of people who need that in the context of the gospel. And with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can give it to them. Middle-agers, so much wisdom, so much compassion. Uh, when I serve with you on committee meetings, I'm just like, oh, just keep talking. Just keep, I love to listen to you talk. You're so wise. Loved ones, there are a huge number of people who need that in the context of the gospel. And with Christ's help, you can give it to them. Younger people, younger families, <clears throat> excuse me, and children. This is easy. Good people, so beautiful, so handsome, so smart, so polite, so gentle, lovely people who I can't imagine would make anyone feel creepy because I don't feel creepy around you. There are a huge number of people who need that in the context of the gospel. And with Christ's help, you can give it to them. You can give it to them. A month and a half ago, I was at Walmart on a Sunday afternoon. It was really, really close to post-church time. And there were tons of people there. Now, I don't know this to be a fact, but I know this by impression. The vast majority of them were outside of Jesus Christ. And I asked myself the question, and actually I was asking God, I said, how are we going to get to them? How? I mean, it's Sunday here in the place. And this is a beautiful place. And go and do stuff. I get that. How are we going to reach them? Here's part of the answer. One at a time. One at a time. God bless you. And may he prosper you in these things. Let's pray together. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.